Hey, everybody. Welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. My name is Rich Slavini. I cover the Jets for ESPN, and I just covered one of the weirdest bad games I've ever seen. Jets beating the Giants in overtime 13-10 in a game that featured more punts than points. Not a good look for New York football, but the Jets won their third straight. They're 4-3. and three. They're still in it, and the star of the game... Hunter Thomas Morstead is our special guest in the second segment. I look forward to talking to Thomas about his big game, about his really good season, and about his career, a very interesting career. For now, we're going to deal with the trading deadline. The deadline was Tuesday at 4 p.m., and the Jets let it pass with no deals. All quiet for the Jets. Carl Lawson, Dalvin Cook, two guys who I think would have welcomed trades, two guys who are unhappy with their playing time, remain on the roster. Joe Douglas spoke to the media Tuesday afternoon, and he did not deny that either player were, was on the uh, trading block, because they were, as we told you last week. Um, but he said they couldn't find a trade. There just wasn't a lot of interest in either Lawson or Cook. I mean, we're talking about two former starters who have not produced this year and are making decent salaries, over $3 million left for the year. So it was going to be hard to move those guys. And Douglas, trying to put a positive spin on it, says these guys are, quote, assets, and he thinks they're going to have to contribute over the second half of the season. I don't see that happening unless there are injuries and they have to move up the depth chart. We'll see. Uh, Douglas, speaking in general about not doing any deals, said he there were a lot of calls to a lot of teams to discuss a lot of players at a lot of different positions. That's a fancy way of saying, you know, they got nothing done. The Jets were quiet. I thought they could have been a little more aggressive. Two players at positions of need, wide receiver and offensive ta- or offensive line, did get moved on Tuesday. Donovan Peoples-Jones, the wide receiver, going from Cleveland to Detroit. And Ezra Cleveland, the guard, going from Minnesota to Jacksonville, I do believe the Jets were interested in Ezra Cleveland. It turns out that Jacksonville gets him for a sixth-round pick. To me, that's a good move for Jacksonville. You're 6-2. and two, You're in the thick of it. you got a chance to make a lot of noise in the AFC, and they go out and fill a need and get a solid guard. Not a great guard, but a guy who was a second-round pick just a few years ago and who can go in and hold the fort at one of the guard spots. I think that would have been a good move for the Jets. Their big move was signing Roger Saffold off the couch. I mean, the guy's been out of football for a few months, hasn't played, wasn't in anybody's camp. He's 35 years old. Now, he has had a long, distinguished career. I'm not taking that away from Roger Saffold. He's been a good player for a long time, but not anybody's training camp this year. That's a big ask to get a guy off the couch and put him in your lineup. He is on the practice squad, but he will be signed to the active roster. Eventually, he's being billed as a two-time Pro Bowler, but that's a little misleading. He made the last two Pro Bowls as a replacement. That shouldn't count on a player's resume. This is one of my pet peeves, because so many guys do not play in the Pro Bowl, opening the door for so many replacements, and those replacements should not be able to use that on their resume, because they were not Pro Bowl players. Sorry, I digress. It's just a pet peeve. Uh, Sappold actually had decent metrics last season with the Bills. 
especially as a pass blocker. But again, he hasn't played in nine or ten months. This kind of smells like the Ryan Khalil signing from a few years ago. You hope not, for, for the Jets' sake. The connection here, obviously, is to Keith Carter, the offensive line coach. He coached him in Tennessee, and so he came with a high recommendation. I'm assuming Sappold's in decent shape. The Jets had him in for a workout on Tuesday, so I don't think they would have signed him if he was fat and overweight. But again, start out on the practice squad, maybe can become a depth piece as they move into the latter half of the season. Uh, yeah, I thought Joe Douglas dropped the ball. I, I mean, is that the best you can do on the trading deadline? I mean, the Jets are in this thing. This is a win-now season. They need help on the offensive line. It doesn't really happen with any significant moves. Um, if I had to project right now, Monday night against the L.A. Chargers, I say Beckton at left tackle, Tomlinson at left guard, the center, not sure. It could be Joe Tipman. He's still recovering from a strange quadricep. I think the Jets are hoping he can play but not quite sure yet. Right guard, probably Billy Turner. He had to finish last week's game there. It's not his natural position. He's more of a tackle. He has played guard in the past. Probably going to have to play it again. And then right tackle, Max Mitchell. Now, if Tippman's not ready, they're probably going to have to elevate Xavier Newman-Johnson from the practice squad. Great story on Sunday against the Giants. The guys activated on Saturday from the practice squad probably thinks he's not even going to play, gets pushed in at right guard when McGovern gets hurt, so they have to move Schweitzer from right guard to center, and in goes Newman Johnson at right guard. Schweitzer lasts all of 10 plays at center before injuring his calf, so now Newman Johnson has to go to center, a position he's never played before, except for something briefly in the preseason for the Tennessee Titans, so the Jets... You know, it almost turns to disaster. The first snap is botched, a botched exchange with Zach Wilson. His second snap almost sails over Wilson's head in the shotgun. That was a great catch by Zach Wilson, by the way. Might have been the best catch of the day by the Jets. But, you know, Johnson, Newman Johnson settles down. He does okay, you know. But, you know, when you review the tape, you know, it wasn't that great. He had... Two sacks allowed. Now, this was a tough assignment. He was blocking Dexter Lawrence, and and Lawrence is a really good defensive tackle. He basically ate, you know, Newman Johnson's lunch on the day. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, a lot of guts for the kid coming off the bench and playing center. But if Tipman can go, it'll be Tipman. If not, I guess they'll have to elevate Newman Johnson from the uh, from the practice squad. Now, McGovern. He's not out for the year. They're keeping their fingers crossed that this dislocated kneecap can be rehabbed and that he can regain enough strength to come back after the minimum four weeks on IR. Maybe he's a December guy who can help the Jets down the stretch. They're keeping their fingers crossed. And let me tell you, they're going to miss Connor McGovern. He doesn't grade out well with all these analytics and this different nonsense that we use nowadays, but He's a very heady player who knows how to read defenses. He can change protection calls. He can really help out a younger quarterback like Zach Wilson. And they don't have another center on the roster who can do that. So this McGovern injury, I think, is being underrated a little bit. Uh, it's, it's a tough one for the Jets. He's a savvy vet, a good locker room guy, and I know he's going to work his butt off to get back. 
and the Jets are hoping he can for the stretch run. But right now, their offensive line is in shambles. And I thought Joe Douglas would be more aggressive. He's an offensive line guy. The one thing in his press conference, he did he did express some frustration at the inordinate number of injuries they've had on the offensive line over the last few years. Uh, too many to count. They can't keep the same five guys, it seems like, for any length of time. So it's really hard to build continuity. This year, they've already started four different offensive line combinations. It'll probably be five on Monday night. Makes it tough. That's why I thought they'd make a bigger, better effort to try to get someone in. Uh, they end up settling for Roger Saffold, uh, a bit of an NFL antique who will have to be dusted off and get up to speed very, very quickly as the Jets play a really big game on Monday night. You know, like I said, three wins in a row. They're hanging around in this thing despite some really, really bad offense. Kudos to the special team. Kudos to their kicker, Greg Zerline, and kudos to Thomas Morstead, who now joins us right after this. Now we're joined by Jets punter Thomas Morstead here on Flight Deck, and he is coming off a punting game for the ages. Uh, just a couple of quick stats on Thomas's performance in the Jets' win on Sunday. He had three kicks, three punts inside the five-yard line, which was not only a career high, but is actually a franchise record for a Jets punter. And Thomas, I did a little research on that, on putting the ball within the five. And typically, based on last year, a typical punter does it two or three times a year. You did it three times in one game. What what did it mean like just to have that kind of day in such an important game for the Jets? Look, I mean, it was a game that we got the ball with one second left to kick a game tire to go into overtime. So I think every single play, every single yard mattered in a game like that. It kind of felt like that was going to be the way it was going into the game for whatever reason. And um, look, I'd love to say I could control the ball like that on every single punt and uh, – you know, sometimes it does the ball doesn't bounce your way, but um, there were a lot of a lot of good punts that were, um, you know, that had a friendly bounce, and um, you know, it was just really cool to come through for the team um, in a way that was needed. Just inside the locker room, right after the game, such an emotional win. What was it like being in that room? And describe the vibe to me. Um, you know, it was. I guys were obviously fired up, but I think we also feel like we, you know, kind of got away with one um you know we we had a lot of penalties and you know we had a lot of you know a lot of mistakes throughout the game on on uh all all three phases really and um you know but i think it just one of those things it doesn't go always go your way and you want to try to make corrections uh week to week and try to keep getting better but at the same time you can you know when guys are going 100 miles an hour giving their very best on every single play and you kind of just you don't look at the scoreboard. You just you just keep fighting and keep you know keep kicking ass. And um, I think guys have shown that to be kind of our calling card this season. Um, you know we just we just haven't given up. And so uh, it's been really exciting to be a part of this team. And uh, you know the love and support. And it's just been it's been very you know it's been a special year for me personally. Um, so I'm just grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, and in fact, that leads me into my next question. After the game, I don't know if fans saw the video, but you were quite emotional after the game talking to the media, um, just 
describing it as like a full circle moment for yourself. And I'm wondering if you could just elaborate on that a little, a little bit and, and describe why it, you know, it was such an emotional day for you. Um, well, I guess I'll go through it. I mean, you know, I've, I've consider myself, you know, to have been the punter of the decade in the 2010s, uh, just been consistently at the highest level, um, competing with Johnny Hecker and Pat McAfee, uh, during that time. And us three were always kind of jockeying for that top spot and to have an injury in 2020 and to kind of just have such a really down year and to get released and my age and the cap went down because of COVID. It just was, there was no opportunity. I think people just thought I was done even though I had retired and, um, you know, this opportunity comes along to come fill in for the Jets for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, I performed at a high level and made it really difficult for them to, to you know, move on from me. And even though they ended up doing that, uh, you know, I just kind of like really just hung in there and persevered and got to see the other side of the business. You know, I've been very well compensated throughout my career and to be on the street and, you know, not having people want to give me an opportunity was just really difficult. And, um, to, to, to have found my way back here after having success with a few other teams, but the age thing is just, I, I've realized how difficult that is to overcome sometimes. And, um, and, um, to be here on this team and the team to have come and got me, you know, to, to, to say, we want you back. And, uh, for me to be, you know, playing at a high level. I don't know. I was just kind of overwhelmed yesterday after the game because it was just, um, you know, I've just always kind of prided myself on on going about my work and, and just trying to be dependable and, you know, guys being excited that I'm 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 the guy that they're depending on in those moments and and it's just kind of culminated to just an awesome, like unforgettable experience yesterday. And um I was just overwhelmed. So mm-hmm. Um, that's all I can say. Well, you're having a Pro Bowl year. I, I don't care what your age is. I mean, you league the league in punts inside the five. You're tied for first with punts inside the 10. And you're fifth in punts inside the 20. So it's it's really, uh, I'm going to use a cliche here. I almost hate to use it, but it's like the fine wine getting better with age. But yeah. uh, I think that applies in this case. Well, I appreciate it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's just been great to be, a, a you know, to be heavily counted on um, by a team or any group, I don't care what job you have, um, to be you know you know appreciated for the work that you do and valued. I think more than what you get paid or anything like that. It just it, it it's it's really meaningful, and um, you know to have that again when I had it for so long in New Orleans, it just it's it's just really a great feeling. And I don't take it for granted. And I'm just really glad to be here and part of this team. To have fans remember, but you were involved in one of the more famous plays in Super Bowl history. Of course, when the Saints beat the Colts in the Super Bowl, the famous onside kick to start the second half, you know, which I think was called ambush, if yep. I'm not mistaken. And, you know, it was a, it, it worked brilliantly. And, you know, it was a, it was a pretty daring call by Sean Payton, but... You were a rookie at the time. So what's it like when the head coach comes up to you at halftime and says, oh, by the way, Thomas, we're going to start the second half in the Super Bowl at an onside kick. What's going through your mind? Did you have time to be nervous or was was it like you went right out there and did it? 
No, I, I think the word I would use is I was terrified. You know, you've got a, <laughs> a, he told me right at the beginning of the halftime and, you know, that Super Bowl show makes halftime about two and a half to three times longer than normal. So it's, I had to sit, I actually, in the moment I was kind of mad at him because, you know, I was like, I got to sit on this for 30 minutes. And I was, I was not, I didn't believe we would actually do it, even though he'd said all week we were going to do it. And, um, and I just, you know, I kind of had a negative uh, reaction to it in the moment. And it was probably a good thing that he gave me the whole halftime to deal with that because um, I just was, you know, I started thinking of everything that all the negatives, uh, the negatives of if it doesn't work and how I could be like the, uh, you know, the Super Bowl goat and, um, you know, and, and, you know, I looked like a spaz. I had my helmet on. I didn't take my helmet on at halftime back then. Wanted to like stay locked into the whole game. So I'm sure I looked like I was freaking out. And, uh, anyways, I was just pacing around the locker room and I had an old coach named Frank Dan senior, who's just sure. a, men a mentor for me. And I kept his picture up in my locker. He had passed away the day after I got drafted and and I just looked up the picture and he used to always say the more aggressive team normally won. And I said, well, this is about as aggressive as it gets. And I kind of relaxed. And then I thought, you know, every time coach called on me in practice to do it, I've hit it how I wanted. And, and then I said, man, if we get this, we're going to, we're going to go win this game. And then all of a sudden the positive juices started flowing. So, um, so yeah, I was confident when I went out there, but I was still absolutely, I mean, just anxious as could be. And, um, so glad that I was able to do it, execute it, and for it to, you know, help spur us to win uh, the Super Bowl, to be a part of the, the, you know, the city of New Orleans history, and, uh, you know, my home's down there. Um, it's, and it's not only that; it's it's carried me in a lot of, you know, you don't always feel confident as a specialist, and uh, to be able to remind yourself that you've got the goods and that you've got it done in the biggest moments and. Uh, remind yourself of that has carried me a lot of, you know, a lot of times throughout my career. So I'm just grateful for that whole time. Just a quick uh, note on your, you have a fascinating backstory. Of course, you were born in Texas. You went to school in Texas at SMU, but you did spend some time in England. Uh, I think your mom was born and raised in England, and that's where you started kicking a rugby ball, which kind of, I guess, got you involved in kicking. Could you, I, I from what I understand, this was a, a an English farming town, right? A very small yeah town. Yeah, yeah. And you started yeah. kicking rugby ball. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, I I kicked a football before. Um, I always used to show up to my my Pearland. Uh, it's a town I'm from outside of Houston. Uh, they would have their local punt passing kick deal, and I would show up to that every year. And I won it a few times and made it to regionals, and never made it past that. But um, you know, I was always interested in it, and I remember watching NFL and certain kickers and punters that I kind of, you know, wanted to emulate. Not that I ever thought I'd play in the NFL, but, um, you know, I went over to England pretty frequently about once a year and I just would go kick around with my cousins at their practices. And, and, um, and my uncle Charlie kind of gave me my first proper punting lesson as, as how to like hit a spiral. And, you know, it's kind of like when somebody just smokes a drive down the middle of the fairway for the first time and you're like wow that feeling uh i had that punting uh i had a spiral and it was just a thing of beauty and i just kind of fell in love with doing it and um you know obviously it's taken me to where i'm at now 
Wow. Well, you, you're still hitting the spirals, that's for sure, and hitting them where they're supposed to be. It's almost like you're hitting a nine iron in a situation. Like, to use the golf analogy, when you drop one inside the five, that's just like dead on. It must be an incredible feeling to put it right down there and, and change it, it is. position. It is. It's a great feeling. And, and, you know, yesterday was really wet and the field was wet. And so, you know, you notice that, you know, if you kick it high, uh, a lot of times the ball will check really hard one way or the other when it lands on that hard turf. And it was kind of just sitting and like squeegeeing almost. It was, you know, the ball wasn't checking a bunch. And so it was, it was a little easier to be a little more aggressive yesterday. And, um, you know, and obviously they, they worked out really well for us. Well, Thomas, it was an awesome game. Like I said earlier, it was a game for the ages. Would you call it the best game of your career? I know that's a loaded question because you've had so many great games in, in no, a long career. No, absolutely not. I wouldn't, I would say it's definitely not. I mean, it's the most punts I've ever had, but, um, you know, I'd have three, three punts in the game yesterday that, you know, I wouldn't be happy with out of the 11. And, uh, I've had plenty of games where we punted six, seven, eight times and they were all exactly what I wanted. So, you know, it obviously we made some big plays. And uh, we needed every yard we could get and, you know, just got a lot of attention, I think, because of the, you know, the punts that were checking up inside the five. Um, but no, I've had, you know, it's the, 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 you know, personally speaking, you know, being in New Orleans, you know, I feel like we averaged two punts a game in my career down there. So there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of heavy punt performances. And so, you know, it was, it was a really good game, made some big plays and um, hopefully we can keep that going. Well, great. Well, I wish you continued success, Thomas. And thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. Reaching into the mail, bat. We got some good ones this week. Batting leadoff in the batting order at the Real Genovese. Zach Wilson seems to shine when he's under pressure, when he doesn't have to think so much. Do you think the Jets will have him go no huddle? Order more of a fast-paced offense to get the most out of his talents. Uh, well, actually, he's not good under pressure, Genovese. He's 28th out of 32 in QBR when throwing under pressure. He did it that, those two big throws at the end of regulation against the Giants where he was under somewhat under some pressure. Um, and I agree they should go to some uh, quick tempo, change it up a little bit. Obviously, they don't feel comfortable with Wilson doing that. Would have been a different story with Aaron Rodgers. I think they would have given him the freedom to go up-tempo whenever he wanted. Different story with Zach Wilson. I'd be careful to read too much into those plays at the end. Uh, you know, he's throwing against defenses that are playing off coverage in those situations. Uh, defenses are a little more tired towards the end of the half or the end of games. So, yeah, he has made some plays like that. But uh, you can't live in the world of no huddle. It just puts a real strain on your defense. And because if it doesn't work, you know, those guys are not spending any time on the bench getting rest. They're back out on the field very quickly. And the Jets don't trust Wilson to be in that kind of up-tempo situation. So th that, I hope, answers your question. At Draped in Yellow, Rich, are you in the Zach is improving camp? If so, what's the main reason you believe in that? Well, I do think he's an improved quarterback. I, I mean, just the eye test tells you that he's better now than he was last year. His stats are basically the same. There was a slight uptick in accuracy. I think his short area accuracy is better because his footwork is better. Now, he did have that one horrible pass to Brees Hall on third and one 
out of the backfield. That was something out of last year. He just basically nosedived that pass right into the turf. Um, but you're seeing better pocket presence. I think you saw that on the 29-yard pass to Wilson. Two-man rush. Uh, showed some presence there. Stepping up in the pocket. Climbing in the pocket, as they like to say. Uh, getting out of the pocket in a nice fashion on the pass to Lazard. An interesting note on that Lazard play. I went back and watched the All-22 Zach Wilson had an open Malik Taylor down the right sideline. He got behind the coverage, and if Wilson had been able to hit him, the Jets would have won the game right there uh, with a touchdown at the end of the fourth quarter. He makes the decision to go to Lazard, which is obviously risky because it's in the middle of the field and you have no timeouts left. Worked out well for the Jets in the end, winning in overtime. But so, yeah, I do see some improvements with Wilson. I think his intangibles a little better, his command of the huddle, um, his confidence, you know, leadership a little bit better. I still would not call him, you know, a commanding leader, but he seems a little more mature, a little more confident. So, yes, he's growing at a very, very slow pace, but he is growing. At Brian, NY Jets fan, why isn't Quentin Williams having the same pact he, he did last year? He was doubled last year. Also, what am I missing? This is a very fair question and really has not come up at all. He is not having the same impact. Now, I know Jet coaches would argue that, but the fact of the matter is he's just not getting to the quarterback as often as he did last year. Now, his pressure numbers are about the same, slightly up this year, actually. 13.9 pressure percentage this year, 13.4 last year, but not closing the deal. Last year, 31 quarterback hits and 12 sacks, lands the big contract this year, only 10 quarterback hits and a half a sack. Yeah, maybe teams are throwing the ball a little quicker, so he's not been able to get to the quarterback. But the fact of the matter, and, and the double team rate is exactly the same as last year. There hasn't been any change. He's getting doubled a lot, just not closing the deal. And I, I don't know the reason why, but he has not been as disruptive as last year. At Paul H underscore REI. Hey, Rich, it seems like the Jets consistently have more than their fair of injuries versus the rest of the league. Do you think there's any correlation to the injuries and the turf at MetLife Stadium? Do you think the Jets will do anything about it? Now, I went back, of course, the last weekend, you know, Al Woods unfortunately tears his right Achilles. I went back and looked at different angles of the play. I do think you could make the argument that this was a turf injury. He was. He had two guys double-teaming. He had all his weight on his legs. He was pushing into those guys. He was anchored in pretty good. And right at the end of that play, you could just see him react when his right Achilles pops. The Rodgers injury in the preseason, I don't know if you could blame that on turf. That's a tough one. Clearly, a couple of weeks ago, Garrett Wilson was upset. He narrowly avoided a, a serious knee injury, a non-contact injury. He kind of aired his feelings about the turf. It's the first year with this turf at MetLife. It's called monofilament turf. They replaced it to, to, to hopefully be more safe for players. I don't agree with the NFL. The NFL throws out all these stats, you know, that there's no difference between turf and grass injuries. I think that's BS. I think there's no question more injuries occur on artificial turf than grass. I just don't see it changing because of the cost factor. You know, which to me seems silly. If I'm an owner of a football team and I'm investing hundreds of millions of dollars in players, why not protect your investment by giving them the safest possible surface to play on? It, it boggles the mind why they don't 
But again, they're going to use the cost excuse as an alibi. And our last question from Martin DeCaro, big picture question. Why do the Jets continue to have one of the worst offenses in the NFL? Eight touchdowns in seven games. In an age of offense, this is pathetic. This production is as poor as anything we've seen over the past decade of Jet Futility. Martin, you are absolutely correct. I looked it up. Since 2011, which was, of course, the start of this long playoff drought, the Jets rank 32nd in points, total yards, and turnovers. Dead last in those categories. Why? Quarterbacking is a big part of it. They've had only one above average quarterbacking season in the past decade plus, and that was Ryan Fitzpatrick in 2015. They've been using a lot of young, inexperienced quarterbacks from Geno Smith to Sam Darnold to Zach Wilson. They've had a revolving door of offensive coordinators, so they've had no continuity, and they've had only one offensive-minded head coach, Adam Gase, and we know how that turned out, and I think that is a factor as well. So you put it all together, it's been bad offense since 2011. They have no identity. Uh, they have no stability. And this is what you get. It's really, really bad offense. The Jets are back in primetime on Monday Night Football facing the L.A. Chargers. This is primetime game number three for the Jets. They're 1-1, one one, beating Buffalo, losing to KC. You know, uh, this is weird. The Jets haven't played the Chargers since 2020. That was out in L.A. The coach was Adam Gase. Of course, it was a debacle of a season. They went 2-14. and 14. I went back and looked at the box score, and this shows you how quickly things change around the NFL. That day, the Jets got rushing touchdowns from Michael Pirine and Frank Gore in their passing touchdowns, Joe Flacco to Brashad Perryman and Chris Herndon. How about those names from the past? Uh, not exactly blessed from the past, but it shows you how much the roster has changed over. The Jets have come a long way. It's a much better roster uh, compared to then. Now, the Chargers, they're a weird team. You know, they're three and four, but they got a lot of talent. Uh, which Justin Herbert is going to show up this week? I think he might be the most gifted passer in the NFL but he had a really bad three-game stretch. He was playing with a fractured middle finger on his left hand, his non-throwing hand. Finally, last week against Chicago, he, you know, he looked better. He completed his first 15 passes. He had no picks for the first time since week three, so it was a better Justin Herbert. Uh, interesting matchup here. He is an outstanding quarterback versus the Blitz. His quarterback rating, uh, his QBR is 90, but he's only 55 versus a standard rush. Now, we know the Jets do not blitz. They go with a standard rush, so that matchup would bowl well for the Jets. I think this is a big week for Michael Carter II. Keenan Allen is one of the best slot receivers in the league. Uh, a large chunk of his production comes out of the slot. He is a crafty veteran with skills, and so that'll be a big concern for the Jets. I think an interesting matchup in this game will be Zach Wilson versus the 32nd-ranked pass defense. Yes, 32nd. Brandon Staley is a defensive-minded coach, but his defense has some holes. They've already allowed 2,000 passing yards. Now, as a comparison, the Jets have only allowed 1,291, uh, but the Chargers are not a train wreck on defense. If you look a little closer, 
not as bad as it might seem. They're 12th in sack percentage. And this all-important stat, they're 13th in third down defense. We know what the Jets are about on third down offense. They are historically bad people. The Jets are 32nd in the league, and it's not even close for the next worst. Uh, So I do think the Jets will be able to make a few plays here in prime time. So I'm going to pick the Jets this week, 23-16, to improve to 5-3. You know, this is, again, it's never going to be pretty on offense. That's just what this team is. It's their identity. It's, you know, you hope you get something out of Brees Hall. You hope you get some plays out of Garrett Wilson. You hope Wilson doesn't screw it up with a turnover. And you count on your defense to play a lockdown style. And I think they can do it against a Charger team that does not play up to their potential. A coach who, frankly, I think might be out of time at the end of the year in Los Angeles. So I'm going to pick Jets 23-16. I want to thank our special guest this week, the Thomas Morstead, for stopping by on Flight Deck. Thanking the producer, of course, Jeff Scopin. We will talk to you next week on Flight Deck. <laughs>